stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, today's the day. The Senate is set to give third and final reading to the legalization bill. That would be basically the last step before at least that side of it's done. It would receive royal assent and whatever else needs to happen <laughs> before it becomes a reality. And that would be largely procedural. So we're still at least a couple of months away from legalization. Probably more like three or four months. But this is the final hurdle. Uh, so I don't know if there's a, a lot of drama necessarily, but who knows what could happen. So that is is set for today. Now, interestingly, both Calgary and Edmonton this week have been uh, discussing their respective bylaws as it pertains to cannabis and specifically the issue of public consumption. Now, in Calgary, it's being discussed. We touched on it yesterday because of a proposal to allow for an exemption in what is otherwise a pretty strict ban on public consumption, but an exemption that would allow for essentially cannabis tents or cannabis gardens, like a beer gardens uh, at festivals, or at least for cannabis festivals. So it's, it's a limited exemption. I mean, it seems logical, but it's about as far as Calgary City Council is prepared to go. Now, meanwhile, up in Edmonton, uh, at a committee level yesterday, it was accepted and goes to council as a whole now. Uh, recommendations for a much more liberal approach to allowing cannabis consumption in public. Uh, that you will, in, in many cases, be allowed to use cannabis in public, even on public streets. So isn't it interesting that two cities in the same province, in the same country, are going to have such vastly different approaches to public consumption of cannabis? So what is the ideal approach when it comes to regulating that issue in particular? And a lot of these other issues that cities, provinces, and even the federal government is struggling with. So joining us to explore some of these details, very pleased to welcome to the program someone who's done a lot of work on this issue. Rebecca haines size an assistant professor of community health sciences at the O'Brien Institute for Public Health, part of the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary, uh, including, by the way, a report uh, that went to the Senate just this week, in fact. Uh, Rebecca, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. First of all, on the issue of public consumption, and I get that it's a, a dilemma for municipalities because cannabis is a little bit like tobacco. It's a little bit like uh, alcohol, but it's obviously unique in a lot of ways, too. What's your sense of the best way to, to address this question? Well, I have, um, you know, sympathy for the approach the municipalities have taken in that, at least in Calgary, they're looking to start out fairly strict and conservative around this because it's easier to dial that back and relax those bylaws rather than, than ramp them up once they have them in place. But I think where I struggle and where other people are struggling is that in a context where we're making a, an illicit substance legal, um, you know, there's a lot of attention on, well, we can't normalize and and I think people who are going to use cannabis uh, sense that as a source of stigma, right? So there's this tension between it's legal, uh, but we can't make it normal or acceptable for people. And I think that's the challenge. Yeah, that's an interesting point because, 
you know, we, we, we want to protect people from it. I mean, people who don't want to be around uh, those smoking cannabis don't want to, to inhale at all of these kinds of issues. And I get that that's a legitimate concern. But there seems to be a lot of emphasis on just we don't want people seeing this. We don't want it to be, as you say, uh, accepted as, as something normal that we encounter in public. Is that enough of a basis uh, to, to prohibit that? I mean, from where I stand, I don't think it is because this is a substance that is part of our society. As you frightfully said, and I love the quote, you know, we're, we're legalizing, we're not inventing. There are people using cannabis today. We have widespread use. And I think it kind of discredits people who may use. I don't get the sense we're going to see a free-for-all of people uh, sparking up on every corner. And I think there's also an overemphasis on smoking when we know that many people um, are moving to to less risky forms, uh, including vaping and edibles. So that's another thing to think about going forward is we're putting a lot of stock in the fact that people will be smoking. And I just don't think that's the case based on the evidence from other jurisdictions. Well, and and from what I understand, that when it comes to to vaping and even when it comes to edibles, we've still got a lot of obstacles in place. And ideally, we, we might want users to, to make that, that shift and, and to push things in that direction. Are we, are we operating at cross purposes here a little bit? Yeah, I think that that's the point, right, is that we are we are looking for people to, to make those less risky uh, choices. But at the same time, um, I think the frustration among people who use cannabis, as I sense it, is that, you know, they don't want to be ostracized and stigmatized for something uh, they feel is also safer and less riskier than alcohol, when alcohol is very much, uh, you know, infused in our culture um, and acceptable. Now, mind you, you, you can't walk down the street uh, drinking, right. uh, but everywhere where you look, um, alcohol is available and it's integrated into culture. So I think there's that push and pull as they uh, don't want to be ostracized and stigmatized. Well, sure. And I, and I think people realize that, okay, I can't walk down the street carrying a beer, but along that street, there are numerous uh, patios. I can sit and have a beer inside these lounges. I can have a beer at uh, sporting events, concerts. I can have a beer even now at a lot of movie theaters. Uh, so alcohol is widely available. And it seems that we're starting off legalization where it's basically you can use it in your own home. And that's that's pretty much it, at least in Calgary. Yeah, and I think it leaves some people more vulnerable, of course, to these regulations. Uh, I'm thinking about renters, you know, who um, whose landlords are people like me who, who live in condos and whose condo boards will likely say, you know, we're not going to tolerate any use in your, in your outdoor areas, common areas, or in your property. Um, so where will people go to consume in the absence of a lounge or, or maybe they'll have to go to a friend's house? And so uh, from a public health perspective, when you, you don't allow people to use in their homes, you're putting them at risk for, for being on the roads, of course, right? Uh, so there's always these unintended consequences uh, that we have to think through. And I think we may need to readjust some of our approaches as we see how people are using and, and what's happening on the ground. I mean, would, would an ideal solution or part of an ideal solution be to have cannabis lounges? You know, I think it could be studied on a pilot basis, uh, but of course, the public health rationale around this is that, um, you know, it puts workers at risk. So there's been a lot of work to bring tobacco smoking out of bars. Um, so if it is going to be combustible cannabis and not vaped cannabis, I think uh, the occupational health and safety concern is that, that workers would be exposed to that. Uh, at the same time, I know that there are cannabis lounges that have been operating in places. There's a one that's been operating in Toronto's Kensington Market for 18 years that are community hubs where uh, people go to congregate, and, and that model seems to work quite well. So 
I think it's something we shouldn't rule out, but uh, I understand that strict public health approach that says we're not going to consider it. Right, and I, I get that we need to, to factor in public health into to how we shape these policies. You had an interesting piece this week up at theconversation.com about the importance of having a public health campaign and an awareness campaign, but one that still has to be evidence-based. You almost get the sense that some feel it's okay to err on the side of um, you know, more alarmist tone because of the interest of public health. Yeah, I mean... It's hard for people to wrap their heads around, and I and I think this is the thing that I struggle with the most is that, especially when it comes to youth or vulnerable people, there is a sense that if we have these hard-hitting messages with, you know, what are the most severe uh, negative consequences of using the substance, that that's really going to prevent people from using the evidence tells us it's just not the case. It doesn't reach the people who are most vulnerable, and uh, we don't have great evidence that we can change behaviors by, you know, these mass media campaigns that are on television or pamphlets or posters. Um, It's a conundrum for public health and health promotion, but it just doesn't work. Well, how do we strike that balance then in in being honest and addressing the legitimate concerns, but also acknowledging that that some concerns are, are misplaced or overblown? Yeah, I think, well, one of the things I always argue for is we need to engage people uh, in what we develop. So a lot of campaigns get developed without input from uh, people who are using or people um, who we see as, the, you know, those vulnerable or at-risk groups. And that's where the messaging often misses the mark. For example, we develop campaigns for youth and it's all adults around the table, researchers and, you know, uh, advertisers. Uh, we're just not in touch with the youth culture. The other thing, though, I think is the biggest shift is moving towards uh, reducing harms and harm reduction messages. So rather than talking about the worst possible outcomes uh, trying to prevent use, we say, okay, you're using, here's uh, less riskier things to do uh, and how to stay safer. And and we have lower risk cannabis use guidelines we developed, and uh, hopefully those messages will come out. What, What are the legitimate public health concerns that we have around this? Uh, I think people are very much concerned about the driving issue. People are concerned about youth prevalence potentially going up. Uh, and people are worried about the impact uh, related to public health and health services about emergency room presentations, uh, acute care implications based on what they've seen in, in U.S. jurisdictions. However, I always make the case from, from the evidence, that looking at what's happened in places like Colorado, uh, it's really like looking at apples and oranges because this is a state in the context of other states wrapping around it where they haven't legalized, right? So they have a great deal of pot tourism, and we're going to have a very different approach here in Alberta and Canada. Right. I think, yeah, that's that's an interesting point because we're legalizing right across the country, whereas some of these U.S. states have had to deal with the fact that, that they're the first and they're, they're attracting a lot of people to their state and they're adjusting with that. That's less of an issue here, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And the other uh, point to take into account is that when you see an uptick in post-legalization in some of these things, uh, it, it really does have to do with removing the reporting bias from or around the substance. So if you see more calls to poison control, if you see more people showing up uh, at the hospital reporting adverse reactions, this is because we've removed the stigma. We know that people who use illicit substances, uh, cannabis, you know, uh, cocaine, fentanyl, they, it's, they 
don't always seek out health care when they're experiencing reactions. That's why we have people dying of overdose in the community, right? So mm-hmm. I expect to see an uptick post-legalization. And part of this is removing the reporting bias. And part of this is people who may try it. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see a great concentration of, of people using it in harmful ways. Well, and that's one thing I'm curious about, because states that have legalized haven't really seen a significant increase in, in consumption, certainly not among youth. Because, I mean, we, we obviously, as you say, have people who use it now. We have people who use other drugs, both legal and illegal. And whether some, some consumption patterns might change, people might use other drugs less, use cannabis more. I mean, people may try it for the first time. What's your sense of how that's going to change post-legalization? Yeah, we released a report on 28 public health indicators yesterday to the Senate. Uh, As you know, they're voting this week on C45, and we wanted to give them this picture of the evidence. And one of the things we focused on uh, was consumption patterns. So amongst youth in Colorado and Washington, uh, there were minor upticks uh, for some grades, and then, um, you know, use remained stable for other grades. I think one of the things we need to watch that's not really captured in the U.S. uh, epidemiological data is youth among older people for medical reasons. I think it's one of the fasting, uh, fastest growing groups is, is people over 65 who have chronic pain, uh, who may have neurological disorders, who are in cancer treatment. And I think there may be health risks or co-occurring conditions and other medications that uh, we just haven't thought through in terms of, well, how can we advise older people and a real um, reluctance from some of the medical community to really look at this. So there's a lot of focus on youth, but I think we also need to focus on older adults as we go forward. Yeah. Well, a lot to consider. Uh, Rebecca, we'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight on these matters. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Rob. All right, there you go. That's uh, Rebecca Haynes-Saw, the University of Calgary, uh, Assistant Professor of Community Health Sciences, also with the O'Brien Institute for Public Health uh, at the U of C. So we've done a lot of research on this issue and uh, presented this report, or was co-authored this report, presented to the Senate today. Uh, as an aside, <laughs> a little um, interesting footnote. If you grew up watching uh, Degrassi Junior High or Degrassi, Degrassi High, do you remember a character named Kathleen Mead? Well, that was Rebecca. <laughs> So there you go. A little interesting tidbit uh, to her resume. 403-974-8255-974. Talk. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.